Welcome to The Alternative Investor, the show where we discuss, debunk, and demystify all things about investing in alternative assets. How you doing, Brad? I'm doing great. Good to see you. It's always good to see you. You're looking particularly dapper today in your sweater. Oh, thank you. It's uh, it's pretty much my uniform these days. All right. Southern California, and it's uh, 76 degrees and we're cold. All right. So, wussies. Brad, what are we doing today? We're going to talk real estate. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait. You do love real estate. You're going to educate me. So, real estate, full disclosure to our audience, is not something I'm an expert in. I'm not even an amateur. You, you own your house. That's true. <laughs> Probably wouldn't do that without my wife. Um, all right. So, Brad, let's kick it off. Real estate. Why, why are we even talking about real estate? Why is real estate a worthwhile asset class to be looking at? A couple of reasons. We're going to start kind of broad and then get a little more focused in the details. But just broadly, a couple of things that make real estate pretty compelling. You have the ability to use attractive debt or leverage, right? Most businesses, you don't get to put on 75% loan to value debt at sub 5%. Yeah. We can do about 10 to 20% in private equity, 30% maybe. Yeah, that's low. Yeah. Uh, so, so jealous. You can get three turns of debt, right? That's 75% over 25% equity at sub 5% interest rates. That is highly accretive debt in terms of that is going to boost your returns relative to the amount of money you're paying in, that you're putting in your equity, which is going to be a small amount relative to how much uh, that property is worth, right? So it, it juices the returns and enables investors to supplement, you know, perhaps lower returns that they're getting in the stock market. Makes sense. Then there's the inflation hedge, right? This is probably, we're probably going into an inflationary environment here. Oh, here it feels we go. like, uh, it feels like, I feel like you've been saying this for seven or I have years. been saying this uh, for quite a while now. This is true. I've but, been, but now it's happening. But now it is happening. I can feel it. Well, I mean, we've had zero interest rates for what, forever? Seems so, like it. You know, how much money can we print before things start appreciating in price? Um, so you know, why, is, why is real estate an inflation hedge? Because you don't have fixed long-term contracts, especially on the residential side of the world or hotels, right? You don't have 10-year leases. You have year leases or sometimes you even have month-to-month leases, right? So you get to pass through rent increases as your expenses increase. And as the economy is heating up, prices are increasing, salaries are increasing, you're able to pass through uh, those increases on to the tenants. I, okay, I got you. So I'm a, I'm a renter and my rent goes up from 1500 bucks a month to 1525 a month. I don't care so much if my salary's been going up and ever, the prices of everything else has been going up as well too. Yeah, you don't feel it as much. And, and also the revenues from the property are increasing faster than your variable expenses, operating expenses, right? Because a lot of those expenses... Um, you know, are going up kind of 2% a year. Your property taxes don't jump tremendously from year to year, even if inflation is rearing its ugly head. And then also you have your debt, which while you can get a floating rate loan, we tend to like to get fixed debt, which uh, most larger operators like generally lean towards doing fixed debt over 10 years, right? So you have this fixed loan payment. If you have fixed debt, you love inflation because all of a sudden your revenues are going through the roof but you're still only paying the same mortgage payment. I got you. I got you. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Then the third one. Yeah. What's the third one? Third one is tax advantages. So real estate has this crazy thing where you're able to uh, depreciate the value of the property. 
and not the land. You can't depreciate land, of course, but you can depreciate the building and the land improvements, right? Roads, streets, signage. You know, you can depreciate all of that at what is a paper expense, right? You're not actually spending money on depreciation. It just wipes away profit on your tax return each year. So for apartments, it's 27 and a half years. So you could be taking a bunch of money in, in distributions each year. The properties are, are kicking off a lot of cash flow. But to the IRS, it looks like you're actually losing money year after year. Ah, I see. I feel like there was something in the news about Donald Trump taking advantage of this over the past couple of years. Yeah, I'm going to stay away from that. <laughs> but yeah, he uh, he was obviously has a lot of savvy accountants gotcha. and he uh, hasn't paid taxes probably for a long, long time. All right, all right. Yeah. And then on top of that, you know, after when you go to sell the property, you have to, you know, recapture those taxes. You're not, you know, just getting rid of taxes indefinitely. It's you're, you're deferring those taxes. But the IRS gave us uh, in real estate another advantage, which is called the 1031. So we can trade into a new property and step into that new basis, start the cycle all over again, start depreciating day one. And so I know people, operators who've owned real estate for 30, 40 years have never paid taxes on it in terms of their appreciation. That's, see, that blows my mind. So you, you can take the gains you made from a real estate deal. And as long as you pump those gains back into another real estate deal within what you said, 30 days. Uh, no, actually you have longer than that. Oh, it's okay. like, uh, it's like almost 90 days. Okay. So some period of time you, you just, the IRS is like, oh, that's cool. Don't worry about the taxes. Yeah. It baffles me actually. I, it must be that Congress has a bunch of investment real estate in their portfolio because yeah. I don't know why anybody would let us get away with this. It almost seems unfair. I'm just not going to you know, tell anybody or complain about it. <laughs> Except everyone who's listening to this podcast. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> okay. So we got debt. That makes sense to me. You guys can get enormous amounts of debt. Uh, it's an inflation hedge because you can pass on rent increases or, or you know, increases in cost to, to your tenants. Tax advantages. Uh, anything else? Well, those are the three big ones. There's a bunch of others, but gotcha. let's let's keep it at that and kind of dive into any questions you might have. And, and ultimately, just because it, you know those are the fundamental reasons why real estate is good, but what that kind of, that just flows back into really good risk adjusted returns, right? I mean, isn't that ultimately what it comes down to? Well, yeah, that's a good point because there's a reason why we can get great debt, right? Banks love giving money to real estate operators. They're obsessed with real estate. And the reason why is because, you know, it's not that difficult, right? These things are highly profitable relative to just about any other business, uh, maybe short of software. Uh, <laughs> but these businesses, day one, usually you're buying real estate and that business is profitable day yeah. one. Whereas the vast majority of businesses out there do not make any money after the owner pays themselves a market rate salary. Yeah, right. right? don't I know it. So it, it's a competitive world out there in small business, but from a real estate standpoint, just by uh, you know the dynamics of how this works is that you're putting up a certain amount of money to pay for profits. Yep. Okay. I love it. I, I now I wish I had gone, but you know I could go back 20 years and just take a real estate. Just path. start all over. Um, okay. So let's. Okay. So you've you've given us sort of the reasons why real estate is incredible. I'm jealous over here. Let's let's start to let's talk to you as a sponsor. So you're a sponsor again as a person who sources a deal and manages it and, and finds, you know, finds the investors. How do you know, how do you know if you found a good deal? Like what do you, what do you look for to evaluate whether a deal is a good deal in, in terms of the metrics of that property? Generally you're looking for, you're going in cap rate, right? Which is just the, the unlevered yield, right? What that property is returning on your investment. So if you're putting it up, $10 million to buy an apartment building. And that property is kicking off a million dollars every year in net operating income. 
that is the cap rate of that deal is 10%, just 1 million divided by 10 million, right? So that's a 10% unlevered yield. Now that's an amazing deal. You probably only, only going to get that in a sketchy market. A more realistic cap rate for a nice apartment building on the coast is, is like a four cap, which would be, you know, a 25 multiple on income, right? Or a five cap, which would be a 20 multiple on okay. income. I'm so glad you brought up cap rate, Brad, because as you know, I think I've asked you what cap rate was, I don't know, over over a dozen times over the last five yeah, years. Yeah, we should have had you explain it because that would have been a good test. <laughs> so because I, I do every time I talk to a real estate guy, cap rate comes into the conversation. So let's let's dig into that a little bit more. Cause in my world in private equity, we look at we look at profit margin or EBITDA is what it's called. So higher cap rate equals lower price. Higher cap rate equals lower price. On the same net operating income, right? So if you have this same apartment building, it makes $1 million, right? Net operating income. That's yeah. before debt. Yeah. And you paid $10 million for it, 10 cap rate. Oh, if, you, okay. if you paid $20 million for it, five cap rate. Oh, I misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Because then when we, private equity, if you paid $10 million for a business that was doing $1 million profit, you would be paying 10 times profit or you can, you know, a multiple of 10. Correct. That's, well, in this example, that is the same as cap rate because <laughs> it's, it's 10% and one over 10 is 10%. But if you paid $20 million for that property, we would say that's a 20 multiple, whereas you would say that's a five cap, cap rate. rate. Ah, ah, okay. It's all making sense. Higher multiple in private equity equals more expensive. Lower cap rate in real estate is more expensive. Correct. Okay. So if I'm looking at an eight cap rate and a five cap rate, all of those things being equal, I always buy the eight cap rate. All other things, All being, other equal. things <laughs> being equal, <laughs> which is never happens. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I think we've um, I think we've beat that horse a little. Oh bit. my goodness! <laughs> did we beat that to death? I'll probably ask you about that again tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and cap rate. Just to caveat that, I mean, that is your kind of look back. You're looking at the existing net operating income from the property, mm -hmm. what the prior owners, you know, has been running the asset at. Uh, that is important. But not the only thing, of course, right? Because you're going to run things a little bit differently. Perhaps the the market rents are you know can be doubled. Maybe the guy is just he's holding owned the thing forever. He knows the tenants. He's been just a very nice landlord and has never raised the rent. You can come in there day one and and bump the rents, double them, which I wouldn't advise, but just in theory you could. And then that say ten cap rate becomes a twenty cap rate because almost all of that revenue is going to float to the the bottom line. Gotcha. Okay. So then, okay. So we started this section by sort of, how do you know if you found a good deal or what are you looking for? But it, cap rate is, is cap rate is effectively, it's a, it, it's incorporating both the profit of the business and net operating income and the price you're paying. So is there anything else you guys look at? I mean, is there, is there, what other metrics are you, are you guys looking at to say, yeah, hey, we so want to do this? We're not going to get into the details of every market, but you, you generally want to be in a growing market, of course, with job growth. That's pretty important. Right. And you don't want to be in a market that has a bunch of su new supply coming on, especially if you're coming into uh, the apartment world, right? You're making an apartment investment. You don't want to see a bunch of brand new class A apartments uh, being built. Supply is really the, the biggest, is really the biggest driver of, of real estate returns, right? You want to always be on top of whatever supply is coming into that market and realize that, look, if things haven't been built in a long time, there's always a lag, right? So if you know things haven't been built in that market for quite some time, you're generally going to be okay raising rents uh, over the next uh, you know few years at least until 
that new supply is delivered to the market at that point, there's going to be more competition and more pressure on pricing. Gotcha. Okay. So, so yeah. And really, so you guys really do, you really do consider the over, you know, the sort of the local market in a, in a real estate deal. You like what's around you. It's, and that's analogous to what we do in private equity. And we, we look at the competition. So if, if your company's selling product, a product, and there's five other people selling that same product, you know, it's going to affect how much you want to pay for it. And it's going to, you know, it's going to consider your investment. You do the same thing just with, in terms of like, it's like almost like a geographically constrained thing, right? Like what other properties are like this in this area? Yeah, I think we're more micro than macro than a lot of industries, right? We really only focus on the property in that market. And, you know, yes, we're aware of what the Fed may do with interest rates, yada, yada, but it is less critical to our investment decision than specifically on Maine and Maine. What is that asset doing in that particular market? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because if you think about real estate if, at its core, it's, it's kind of a little mini monopoly, right? Like, like you just said, you know, there's, there's only one apartment building at Maine and whatever, Maine and Maine or Maine and First Street, right? And if you want to live at Maine and First Street, because that's the apartment building that you want to live in and it's within a walk to your work or whatever, it's like, that's it. That's your choice. So, you know, you, you guys, it makes sense to me that you would just consider like, right, what, is, what are the other people supplying a very like product in a, in a pretty geographically constrained market? Yeah, because we do have some pricing power because it's not easy to move. Granted, you know, you, if you get out of line with the competition, you try to, you know, jack rates, uh, push rents too much. Sure, somebody's going to move into a different apartment building. But, you know, you think about that, everybody's moved, right? It is not easy. You're generally not going to move over a $25, $50 rent increase. Right. Yeah. So there is some stickiness to it. Granted, you know, apartment buildings are short term leases. Uh, but if you're if you're talking about, you know, a large commercial building or an industrial complex, obviously there's different factors to consider. But the vast majority of, of people kind of get their start uh, in apartments or single family home rentals and then start to graduate into other asset classes as they learn more about real estate and are more comfortable with the, the metrics and the analysis. Yeah, no, that makes sense. OK, so. So cap rate makes sense to me. That's 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 sort of how much you're willing to pay for the thing. Um, the market makes sense to me. You got to understand the market. Anything else? I mean, are you looking for something that that you can improve? Or I guess there's different strategies in real estate. Some guys want to come in and add a lot of value to the building. Other people just want to milk it for cash, right? Totally. Generally, most of the opportunities as a, a passive investor that you're going to see are going to have some kind of value add component to it, right? There'll be some operators that are doing development that is way outside on the scale of risk and, and potential returns because the thing's not built yet. You have entitlement risk, construction risk, right? Market risk. And then on the other spectrum is a, a fully stabilized, you know, class A building, which is just a really nice building in a nice market that's, that has market rents and is full. There's not a lot that that person can do. So that's what's called a core deal. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, the development deals are opportunistic. In the middle is this value-add concept. And the majority of deals we're going to look at have some kind of value-add component to it. Hey, we're going to buy this apartment building in Houston and we're going to come in. It's all, it was built in 1980s and they haven't done anything with the kitchens. So we're going to come in and we're going to renovate every kitchen. We're going to spend $25,000 per unit. And that's going to enable us to bump rents 150 bucks. And that's going to get us to a value-add type of uh, return IRR in the high double digits. Gotcha. Okay. So this, this leads nicely into my my next question around how much, how do you know how much you want to pay for something? So you already talked about cap rate, which is a, it's effectively a measure of, of how much you're paying relative to how much profit it's spitting out. How do, 
how, how do you go a little deeper on that? How do you know if you have a good, this is a good cap rate? Is this a cap rate you want to pay? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah. So some people just think about cap rates, you know, as, as one metric and that's the same across every market and every type of deal. And that's the wrong way to think about cap rates, right? You have to uh, assign the cap rate to the market and the risk of the deal, right? A, a seven cap in California is not the same as a seven cap in Michigan, obviously, right? You're, you're going to prefer larger, bigger, uh, more attractive markets, generally speaking, all things considered, right? And if it's a, a 70% deal that is a five cap, that's a lot different than a 95% occupied deal that's a, that's a five cap. So you have to factor in risk. You have to factor in your strategy, the value add strategy, and see where you can get that deal to in the next few years uh, with the business plan, right? If you're improving the property, then you can start thinking about, well, I think we're going to add 10, 10% in occupancy and that's going to move the cap rate and we're going to get to our, our goal within three years, Wait, right? Sorry, so there's, can we go back to, the, well, you made a yeah. comment, 7%, 7 cap rate in California is not a 7 cap rate in Michigan. What do you mean by that? Like, I'm just saying that you, uh, they're not the same type of deal, right? Generally speaking, more people are going to take the California deal, all things about the building being the same, right? in California than they are in Michigan and, or maybe a better well, way to unpack that for me. Yeah. It's not clear to me why maybe a better way to think about it is that, yeah, let's do it this way. A seven cap in Michigan is not necessarily better than a five cap in California. Okay. okay. The five cap in California is more expensive relative to how much cash is spitting out. But it, I'm just, I'm trying to connect the dots. Hey, I believe more people are moving to California. It's a growing market. People are moving out of Michigan. So therefore the future looks brighter for this five cap product project. Is that, is that kind of where you're going? Yeah. Sorry. I guess I'm making the assumption that most people understand that, that California real estate investors tend to think California is a safer bet than say uh, North Dakota, right? Cause it's a big, it's a mm. much bigger market tends to have uh, population growth. So I guess my point is you can't say that two, you're looking at two investments and just because one deal has a, a higher cap rate, thus a cheaper price. Yeah. There's just more that risk. That one's going okay. to be a better investment. Yeah. Cause one deal might, yeah, I get it. So the, the, whatever the seven cap in, in North Dakota, that's spitting off a decent amount of cash relative you know, to its price. That's, there's just more risk associated with that because Hey, that market might be fluctuating a lot over the last few years. It's and, fewer people, right? Mm -hmm. there, there's not as big of an economy. There's fewer investors that want to be in that market. So your exit looks a little dicier than California, right? Or New York or yeah. Seattle or DC, right? There's certain markets that are considered class A in the real estate investor uh, mine or a primary market versus a secondary market like Phoenix, Denver, and then tertiary is what we just talked about, kind of the you know the Michigans, the North Dakotas, the Minnesotas. Okay. So then, but then how do you, okay, let's take that seven cap in California. How do you know? How do you decide, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull the trigger on this. I think this is a good deal. I mean, do, are, you, are you modeling out an annual return for your investors? Like what, how do you decide if that seven cap is worth paying? Yeah, I wish they were seven caps in California, by the way. I don't know why I use that number. <laughs> four caps. Yeah, it's right. four, sometimes three. So you, yeah, you're gonna model this out and you're gonna throw in your, your capital assumptions, right? You're gonna throw in all, every expense that you can think of relative to that market, what mm -hmm. you would expect. And you're gonna make assumptions. This is the same thing you would go through if you were buying a business. So when you're buying a business, you're probably making, I don't know, a hundred assumptions on your model, if not more, and you're trying to be as realistic as possible. I think I would just argue that real estate has probably a tighter band of what is probable 
for that expense or that revenue yeah. relative yeah. to analyzing a business. Yeah, because I think, I guess here's where I'm going with this is that ultimately whether or not you pay a, a number for a deal that, you know, assume you like the deal and whether or not you pay that price, it all kind of comes back to what you expect your kind of annualized return to be on that deal to, to you or to your investors, right? I mean, that's ultimately what you're looking at, correct? Correct. Yeah. And there's some investors that are comfortable with not getting paid a current return, right? Day one, they're mm -hmm. not getting distributions, right? They, they're comfortable with that. Hey, this is a value add plan. We're going to inject a, a fair amount of capital to improve the property, which enables us to increase rent. And yeah. then we're going to sell it yeah. or refinance it in year three. And we're all going to hit a 20% IRR and be happy. Yeah. Then there's other investors that, that would prefer their longer term investors. They want to put their money to work for 10 years plus, if not indefinitely, and just clip coupons every year. And those distributions, generally those deals are, maybe they grow a little bit slower. Uh, and so you're not going to have a big pop in an IRR, right? The initial return, uh, but you're going to get more cash flow over the long term. Yeah. Cause it, it feels to me like in all these, all these alternative investments we're going to talk about, ultimately what it comes down to is what's, What's your annualized return on this deal and how certain are you going to get that, right? I mean, isn't that, it's really the two things that end up mattering, correct? Yeah. And that's the, probably the toughest aspect of what we do for a living is yeah. that everybody quotes on their website, Hey, we're going to deliver compelling, attractive, high risk adjusted returns. But, but what does that mean? Cause there is no, there is no real useful metric for risk. There's volatility in the stock market. I would argue that's a crappy metric for risk, mm -hmm. right? That doesn't mean that that investment's going to zero. It just means it's going to fluctuate. Yeah. Right. So in real estate, in buying a business, you can't quantify the risk. All you can do as an investor is try to think about probabilities and trying to try to be intellectually honest with yourself when you're looking at an investment and try to determine, okay, well, what is the chance that you're going to be able to raise rents 5% a year in a declining market, right? Probably not very good. So you can't just blindly take whatever assumptions the sponsor is coming up with. You just have to think about probabilities. And that to me is how you kind of think about risk adjusted returns. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, and so kind of going back to how do you know how much you're going to pay for a deal? You, you, you think about the cap rate and you, you sort of think about that cap rate in conjunction with some measure of risk, whether, you know, the market, what's happening in that, you know, that local market, where's the supply going, you know, what's, what are the demographics doing? I mean, that's, it feels like that's almost a proxy for how, how risky is the return on this deal? Yeah. And then you can also, I, I love to play with the assumptions on what component of this overall return, whether it's three years, seven years, 10 years, right, is going to be attributable to cash flow versus your exit assumption, mm, right? Yeah. What you can sell it for. Because all I know is 10 years out, I have no clue what's going to happen. Right. I don't know where interest rates are going to be. I don't know where investor appetite is going to be. So anytime I'm looking at a deal that is not a, a three-year type of value-add flip, basically, where there you, you better get the exit, right? If you're looking at a longer-term deal, seven, 10 years plus, you want to see that deal that has a higher percentage of their overall return in the cash flow component relative or 50-50 or 60-40, or just a, a meaningful percentage of the return in that cash flow versus what you're ultimately going to exit at. Yeah, makes sense to me. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. No, yeah, that's it's funny because there's so many there's so many analogous things to from real estate to private equity and ultimately this is what it comes down to is like what what what's your annualized return going to be and how risky is that? 
there's different levers you can pull in each of these asset classes, but it kind of comes back to the same thing. And I would argue that most people don't do this analysis, which they should, is they probably should be looking at after-tax returns too uh, when they're comparing mm-hmm. investments. Yeah. Right? Because the reality is, is if, if it's heavily taxed, well, the only thing that matters is what you're taking home. Right, right. So if you're investing in something that doesn't have any tax benefits, well, that return better be a lot higher. <laughs> That's a good point. Right. And uh, so this is what like people, our friends get really pissed at us, right? It's, is that when they, they work for an investment bank or a consulting firm and they're making big salaries, right? That's great. But they also have, they also have a 50% tax bill coming every year. Whereas and thankfully in private investments, you're able to shelter a fair amount of that income through that, you know, what we talked about, the paper loss and depreciation. Yeah. And then at one point, once we get a lot smarter on this stuff, we'll do a tax, a tax show. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll bring somebody who actually yeah, we'll, knows we'll, you know, yeah, what we're talking about. Like it a CPA. Would, yeah. wouldn't be us. Yeah. Um, okay. So then let's, the final thing I want to talk to you about is growth. Um, you know, I, when we do these private equity deals, venture capital deals, a, a, a big reason you're doing this is because the sponsor is going to grow the asset. They're going to, they're going to generate more revenue. They're going to generate more profit. And that's really going to ha- that's how you're going to make your return. How do you, how do you think about growth in real estate? I just feel like it's harder to really move the needle here. Um, how do you think about that? Yeah. So I think like, let's take California apartment buildings right now. I think everybody who is buying an apartment building in California right now, the only way that they're making the numbers work is by just assuming they're going to grow the heck out of that thing somehow, right? They, they found this gem of a deal. They're going to do this huge value add plan and spend a bunch of money and they're going to grow it. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's the equivalent of probably buying a, a software business, a operating company, and just making very aggressive assumptions on the top line the yeah. revenue, right? Most of the time, real estate operators, they're thinking about, okay, they think more about the downside, really. They think, okay, I'm going in and I know what uh, you know, downside is that things are just going to remain as is. And if I'm comfortable with that return, I got to be comfortable with that return because I might not hit my rent increases. We might have a recession. Maybe my occupancy marketing strategy doesn't work. But as long as I'm comfortable with the cash flow and returns day one as a downside scenario, then you can kind of get more comfortable with the upside story. Interesting. So, so you, do you do deal? Do you do deals in your in your experience? Have you done deals where you really don't assume any growth? You assume just kind of status quo, and and the numbers still pencil out. Yeah, it's pretty typical that you when you're doing analysis in real estate, you think about three returns. Okay, what's our what's our base case? Right. This is kind of what we think is the highest probability outcome. And your base case often will be flat. A base case has some growth. Okay, some, right? some growth. Yeah, we think, okay, well, we're not, we're not going to crush it, right? It's likely that we're going to do something. We're not going to just sit on our hands. But is some like, are we talking 2 to 5%, 10%, 10 to 20% per year? Like what's, what's base case some growth for you guys? Usually doing? it's kind of, you know, 3 to 5%. Yeah. Each year. So it's a, this is a very stable, yeah, it's, it just feels like a very stable, low growth. Yeah, well, sometimes that's, but that's usually after kind of initial push, yeah. right? If, it, if the property's 70% occupied, it's not, you better be growing it faster than three or 5% a year in the first, in the first couple of years. So yeah. usually there's an initial burst, right? Okay, we're attacking this thing. And then, okay, well, we got the thing stabilized. Now moving forward, we're only going to be bumping rents incrementally. We're not going to have another huge push. Okay, so then. That's our base case. Our downside is is generally, you know, we, we generally don't assume that the thing's going to blow up and you're going to, it's going to go from uh, 90% occupied to 50%, right? Nobody thinks that, right? That's pretty rare. Something, you really has had to have missed something in due diligence for that to happen, 
right? The things on a toxic waste dump, uh, you know, 30 new, brand new, better looking apartment buildings are going to come out at the same price, same rents, right? So generally speaking, the downside case is kind of you just do not pull off the plan at all. And, and it's kind of status quo. Which again, in real estate, it's probably not going to zero, whereas oftentimes, not often, but hopefully very rarely, but and when you do in venture, well, venture more venture, likely private equity, yeah. the, the downside often can be the business just goes away. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, do you guys kind of think about the returns in that way or is it you come no. up with one? <laughs> I don't, I haven't seen a downside scenario where the business just goes to zero. That would be scary. Yeah, that's funny. I don't I think mean, anyone would do that. Too. Why would you even like, get, <laughs> why would you even get in the business or think about it? Yeah. You know? <laughs> okay. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better that at least in your, even in your base case scenario, even in real estate, which I think of this really great risk adjusted return environment, you do, you do have to generate some pretty near term growth to make the numbers pencil out. You can't just buy something and do, sit on do it. nothing to it and, and make a decent return. You can, if you own it long enough, like time heals a lot of that, those mm -hmm. problems, those growth problems, because you have some built in things going for you, right. In terms of besides just the, the tax benefits, but the fact that your tenants are paying off the debt, mm -hmm. right. By 30 years, the debt's going to be gone on every deal. Yeah. Well, you're not that, getting yeah. a 40 year mortgage, but yeah. Yeah. So it goes back to that high debt, high debt amount you're, you're around to get. Um, Okay. I love it. I think we all should go out and do some real estate deals, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that everybody should have some real estate other than your single family home, your, your residence. People think, oh yeah, no, I, I have some real estate exposure. I own my three bedroom house in Long Island. Well, no, that doesn't count to your real estate portfolio because you don't want to think of your, your home as, as a real estate investment. So I think people should, you know, should have some real estate exposure outside of their stock and bond portfolio in addition to some private equity and venture capital that we'll, we'll get into, but definitely uh, look at some real estate deals. All right. Well, you sold me. Hey, all right. Take care. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to the alternative investor. Since you made it this far, you should take a second to subscribe to the podcast and join our email list. There you'll receive additional insights and insider access to the world of alternative investments. Just visit the alternative investor show.com.